Christians can be somewhat strange. We often talk about Jesus as our King. We've been singing about Jesus as our King all, all morning during the service. The, the notion that uh, a kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, is real, that it's present, and that it is of the world to come can be easily misunderstood. Even the, the very idea of a kingdom is sometimes looked down upon in our American context. After all, many fought a war in order to escape the power of a king. Uh, the few remaining kingdoms in this world are, are much different than they were in days gone by. The United Kingdom is best described these days as a, a constitutional monarchy. The queen, the, the monarch, has limited powers. There are very few, if any, absolute monarchies in the world today. I bring this up because this morning in Luke chapter 11, the, the theme of the kingdom of God is quite pronounced. The Old and the New Testaments are constantly speaking of the kingdom, but we often take for granted what that means. One essential contour of the kingdom of God is that the kingdom has a king. We, you know, it's basic, but that is essential that we recognize that Jesus is the king of the kingdom of God. He is the supreme ruler, and in fact, he is an absolute monarch. Another contour of the kingdom is that the king who rules the kingdom rules by the principles of righteousness. Jesus rules in perfect justice and in perfect love. Furthermore, the kingdom of God is made up of citizens who have been made righteous through their faith union with the king. You see, according to the Bible, we are not naturally citizens of the kingdom of God. We have to become citizens of the kingdom of God. And that takes place as we come to see that Jesus is our only Savior and King. It is then, and only then, that we come under Jesus' rule and reign. Gerhardus Voss put it well when he said that the kingdom of God exists where God supernaturally carries through His supremacy against all opposing powers and brings man to a willing recognition of the same. As we study Luke 11 this morning, it's my prayer that God would make Himself supreme in our hearts and that God's supremacy would be manifested in our lives. It's my prayer that each and every one of us here this morning would delight in Christ our King. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 869. 869. As I've said many times in this series, and will continue to say, uh, the main point of Luke's Gospel is to announce that the good news, that the Savior of the world, the King, has come. This is the good news of Luke's Gospel, that the second Adam, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised King and son of David, has come to, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 and 78, give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. In Luke chapter 11, we are on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem. Jesus has revealed that He must go to Jerusalem to die for the salvation of sinners. He has also revealed that He will be raised from the grave. Luke 11 is situated toward the beginning of this 10-chapter journey on that road. Beginning in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, Jesus got on the road to Jerusalem. And when we get to Luke chapter 19, verse 44, should the Lord Jesus tarry, we will finally see Jesus arrive in Jerusalem. And it's there that He will die in the place of sinners and be raised up in glory. Now, for the purposes of our study this morning, it's important that we remember what has already happened on this road. Jesus, He has been teaching His disciples about what it looks like and means to follow Him. Jesus has communicated to His disciples that to follow Him means that we are called to give ourselves to loving God and loving our neighbor. 
following Jesus means that we abandon any hope of justifying ourselves and instead place our whole hope in Jesus' power to save us. In the process of teaching his disciples about these things, Jesus has had his first confrontation with a lawyer from the Jewish religious leaders. And this morning, what we'll see in Luke 11 is that the tension between Jesus and the Jewish religious leaders is going to continue to rise. It's going to continue to intensify. Jesus has already denounced their unbelief, and we'll see that he does it again in Luke 11. But Luke 11 begins where Luke 10 ends. Luke 11 begins with a focus on the fact that we are needy people. And that's exemplified in the need to pray. We're going to study Luke chapter 11 in three sections under three headings. Kingdom prayer, kingdom presence, and kingdom pronouncements. So if you're taking notes this morning, those three points will form the outline of the rest of the sermon. Let's begin with our first point, kingdom prayer. And as we do, uh, let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 1 to 13. Luke 11, 1 to 13. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Well, the theme of prayer in these verses is not hard to spot. First, we find Jesus praying in verse 1. Then Jesus' disciples ask Him to teach them how to pray. Jesus does in verses 2 and 3. But then He offers a, a few extra lessons on prayer for good measure. Our natural impulse is to, to jump right into dissecting the prayer that Jesus uses as a model for His disciples. But that would be to miss something incredibly important there in verses 1 and 2. What is so important there in verses 1 and 2? Well, it is that Jesus prays. He communes with God the Father. And His disciples have taken notice. Luke gives us a, a window into Jesus' prayer life over and over and over again in this Gospel. Jesus has been praying so much and so often that we may venture to suppose that his disciples have decided that they wish to have such a rich prayer life too. If the Lord of glory prayed, if his disciples desire to know how to pray, then we who follow him should too. Prayer is not difficult. It is simply talking to God about the things of his word, the things that he lays on our hearts, the things that He's doing in our lives, and the things that He's doing in our church. If you struggle with prayer, I have two suggestions for you. One, pick up a copy of Don Whitney's little book, uh, Praying the Bible. You can find a copy of it in the book nook. I wish I had one here, but it's real small, short, thin. It's useful, practical, and brief. Uh, you can find a copy again of the book nook. It's free. Take your own copy. My second suggestion 
is to actually take up the form of prayer that Jesus provides for us here. Now, we, we need to remember that not only has Jesus given us an actual prayer to offer to God, but He has also given us a form in which we can follow. These are not only real petitions, but they are also real categories, I think, that we may use to offer to the God who is really our Father. Brothers and sisters, let's always remember that when we pray. Jesus begins teaching His disciples how to pray by teaching His disciples to call out to the Father. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into a special relationship with God, where we may call Him our Father. And He is not just a good Father. He is the best and most benevolent Father. He is a Father who is full of grace and mercy. He is a Father who is ready and willing to provide. He is a Father who is ready to keep and guard us from the evil one. He is a Father who, by grace, every earthly father should seek to imitate. Now here is the truth. A truth uh, so simple that it's captured in a children's song. God will not listen to just anyone. Only believers who trust in His Son. So the question is, how do we become God's children and enjoy the privilege of prayer? God has made us to relate to Him as our loving Heavenly Father. He made us in His image to serve and honor and love Him. But just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we've rejected Him as our Father. We've decided to live our own way rather than His. And this is what the Bible calls sin. Because God is holy and loving and just, He must punish sin. In fact, because of our sin, we all stand in danger of facing God's just wrath against our sin forever in hell. But in love, God sent forth His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully man and fully God, and He lived the life that we have not lived, a life of perfect obedience to God the Father. He died the death that we deserve to face as a punishment for our sins, taking upon Himself the sins and the punishment due to the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sins and place their faith in Him. And three days later, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and proving to us all that His life and death on behalf of repenting sinners was acceptable in God's sight. Friend, if you would turn from your sins and believe that God's Son, Jesus, lived and died for you, then you too would be adopted into God's family as a child of God. Those who are sons and daughters in God's family receive the joy of living forever with their loving Heavenly Father. And not only that, but they receive the comfort of the presence of Christ in their lives through the work of the Holy Spirit. And I want to urge you to turn from your sins and to place your faith in Jesus Christ today. I want to urge you to find out more about what it means to be a child in God's family. Talk to someone about that today. Come and find me after the service or talk with a friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Become a child of God by faith in Jesus. God adopts us into His family by faith. And in doing so, He gives us all the rights and privileges of being His children. We're promised the, the riches of heaven. And this is the staggering truth that God wasn't sonless. He wasn't childless. He already had a son. He already had an heir. And yet He has made us co-heirs with Christ. He has made us His children. God's love toward us in Christ is unbelievable, except that He's told us to believe it. It's no wonder why the Apostle John exclaims in 1 John 3, 1, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is why Jesus teaches us that God's name, and not our own, should be hallowed or praised. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray for God's kingdom to come, and not our own. Verse 2. Jesus teaches us to pray for what we need. Bread for our bodies, forgiveness, for our souls, 
and deliverance from all evil. Verse 3. We are a needy people, and so we need to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray for the things that only God can provide. Do you pray for these things? Do you pray for bread for your body, forgiveness for your soul, and deliverance from all evil? Do you pray for these things? Do not presume upon the kindness of God for them. Our God is indeed generous, and He is pleased to give us gifts, even though we do not ask. But He has also made plain that He uses means, and one of those means is prayer. So let us pray for the things that Jesus teaches us to pray for. Do not just give thanks for your food, but also pray that you would be provided food. Do not just give thanks for forgiveness through Christ, but continually appeal to God through Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Do not just give thanks to God for when He has been pleased to give you an escape from temptation. Pray that He would continue to lead you to flee from temptation. Do we not need these things each and every day? We do. And this is what part of why Jesus teaches us to pray for them. Jesus teaches us something else about kingdom prayer in verses 5 through 13. Jesus teaches us that as our Father, God is pleased to answer our prayer, our petitions. Now there are, are two things that are in tension here in these verses in verses 5 to 13. The first idea is that we need to keep praying, keep petitioning, keep asking God to meet our needs. That is why Jesus constructs this scenario of a man banging on the door of his neighbor, pleading with him to give him what he needs. Notice that he knocks in the dark of night. That's a terrible time to ask for something, a terrible time for a visitor to arrive. But it is not a terrible time to pray. We can pray at any time, and we must persist in prayer. Jesus says, ask, seek, knock. Don't stop praying. The other truth that we find in these verses is that God is so much better than a groggy or grumpy neighbor that we're waking up in the middle of the night. God will not tell us to go away. Not only does Jesus tell us that our Father in Heaven is greater than a groggy and grumpy neighbor, He also tells us that our Father in Heaven is greater than any father on earth. Earthly fathers, even though they are, are filled with sin, still know how to give good gifts to their children. How much greater is our Father in Heaven who is full of righteousness, unlimited resources, and incomparable love? How much greater are the gifts that He gives? Notice in verse 13 that, G that God will even give the Holy Spirit a sure and certain sign that the Kingdom of God has come. In the Scriptures, there is no better gift because when God gives the Holy Spirit to His people, He gives them Himself. Isn't our God generous? What do you want? What do you need? Don't you need to be fed? Don't you need to be forgiven? And don't you need help to flee from sin? then don't you need the generosity of the Father, the righteousness of the Son, and the presence of the Spirit in your life? My only question is, will you pray? Those who are needy are those who pray. If your needs are great, then your knees will be on the ground. You will pray for the praise of God, for the progress of the kingdom of Christ, and give thanks for the gift of the Spirit. Our Father invites us to come to Him, to talk to Him, to petition Him, and so find our needs met by Him. Let us give ourselves to kingdom prayer. Through teaching His disciples to pray for the kingdom to come, and that God the Father gives the gift of His Holy Spirit. Jesus has been teaching us something about the presence, the present presence of the kingdom. 
This becomes all the more plain in our second point, kingdom presence. Let's turn now and consider our second point. And as we do, let's begin by reading Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. Luke chapter 11, verses 14 through 20. Now, he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Now what happens in these verses is normal in Jesus' ministry. He is constantly casting out demons, rebuking them, and relieving those whom they are oppressing. Not only did Jesus cast out this demon, but he also made the mute man speak. This is precisely what the Old Testament promised would happen when God came to earth. In Isaiah chapter 35, verse 5, we are told that when God comes, the tongues of the mute will be loose. While all of this is normal in Jesus' ministry, let's admit that it's not normal in human experience. People, we are told in verse 14, marveled because of this. This is unusual. And precisely because it is unusual, we should recognize this event is unveiling a truth for us. The truth that is being unveiled for us is found right there at the end of verse 20. The kingdom of God has come. The kingdom of God has come because the king has come. This revelation from Jesus that the kingdom is present comes as a consequence of his conflict with those who are seeking to test him. Verse 15. And from others who are seeking a sign from him. Verse 16. Jesus forcefully dismisses the silly idea that he is doing these mighty works by the power of Beelzebul from a logical standpoint. It's a ludicrous idea. Beelzebul, Satan, would not destroy his own destructive work. That's what he loves. He loves destruction. But Jesus is here destroying the works of the evil one. He is bringing the destruction to an end. The crowd's charge and challenge makes no sense. It, it is nonsense. It's unreasonable. It is illogical. And let us pause and notice this about unbelief. It is unreasonable. Unbelief is illogical. Often Christians, followers of Jesus, are cast as adverse to logic and reason. But precisely the reverse is true. Where is the logic in attempting to trap and test God? Can reason be found in rebellion against the living God? No. We should recognize that this announcement of the kingdom's presence is an astounding revelation from Jesus. From nearly the very beginning of the Bible, all the way back in Genesis 3, we have been told that a conquering king would come. Since Genesis 3, God has been promising to us that he would send a son, his son, to crush the head of the serpent. And what do we find Jesus doing here? Conquering Satan and his minions. He is destroying their destruction. And that theme continues into verses 21 to 23. Read verses Luke 11, 21 to 23. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overtakes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Here, Jesus, he's using an analogy to explain what's going on in his ministry and in the casting out of this demon. He is further explaining the conquest of the kingdom. 
he has come to make war against Satan. Jesus is overcoming the evil one. But notice in verse 23 that he's also beginning to call those in his hearing to take a side. If you're not with Jesus, you're against him. There's no neutral ground. You're either with Jesus or you're against him. You're either repenting of your sins, thereby coming under his gracious rule, the gracious rule of this great king, or you are in league with the opposing kingdom, with the kingdom of Satan and of darkness, the very kingdom that Jesus has come to defeat. So the question for each one of us here this morning is this, are you with Jesus or are you against him? How do you know if you're with Jesus? Well, the Savior gives us insight to this in verses 24 to 28. Read Luke chapter 11, verses 24 to 28. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person was worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. See, it's not enough to clean up your life. It's not enough to have a spiritual experience sometime in the past. Unless Jesus is guarding your heart, unless the Spirit of the living God has come in to inhabit your heart, the same old demons, the same old sins, are going to come and creep back in. They may even make things worse than they were before. Do you see how important it is for the Father to give the gift of the Spirit to His children? To give us the gift of regeneration, True regeneration, true awakening and true life in Jesus. True submission to Jesus. Just as it's not enough to have a positive spiritual experience, it's also not enough to have the right heritage. In verse 27, someone from the crowd declares that Jesus' mother was blessed because she bore him and nursed him. Mary was blessed, but not because she bore Jesus. Mary was blessed because she heard God's word of promise. She believed it and kept it in her heart. Mary was blessed because she believed the promises of God and obeyed in faith. This is not just true for Mary. It is true for all who believe the promises of God. Those who hear the word of God and believe it with all their heart are blessed. They live under the favor of God the Father. This is how we reveal that we are with Jesus. We believe the word of the Old Testament promise concerning the coming of the kingdom, and we believe the word of Jesus, namely, that the king of the kingdom has come, that he is the one who's come to save us. This is the point that Jesus drives home in verses 29 to 32. Here, Jesus is stressing that the kingdom has come because he is the king who has brought the kingdom. Read Luke 11. Uh, verses 29 to 32. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You see, in verse 29, Jesus reminds us of the demand that was made of him back in verse 16. It was an amazing demand when you think of it, about what had just taken place with Jesus casting out the demon. Jesus casts out this demon. He makes a mute man to speak and say, oh, by the way, would you give us some kind of sign that you're from God? They wanted a sign? 
Was there really anything Jesus could do to persuade them to believe? I suppose we shouldn't be too hard on the crowd. People in our day want a sign from God. They want God to prove Himself as real to them. Have you ever shared your faith with someone and they've kind of blown you off by saying something like, that sounds great and all, but God just doesn't, He doesn't seem real to me. Uh, perhaps if He gave me some kind of you know, sign from heaven, some signal in the sky, I think I could believe Him. The reality is, is that God has given them and us a sign. And it is Jesus. It is Jesus and His life and His ministry and His resurrection from the dead. No other sign is needed from God to prove that He is real and active and at work in our world. And what greater sign could be given than Jesus' resurrection from the dead? Jesus tells the crowd in verse 20 sign that no sign will be given to them except for one. The sign of the prophet Jonah. What could that be? Well, in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus compares Jonah's time entombed in the belly of the fish to the time he will spend entombed in the heart of the earth. In other words, Jonah's life and experience foreshadow Jesus' death and resurrection. What Jesus is saying here is that the people of Nineveh, they saw Jonah's miraculous experience with that great fish as a sign that testified to the truth and power of his preaching. That it was a message from God. In a like manner, the whole of Jesus' life, punctuated with an exclamation mark by His resurrection from the dead, serves as a sign to His present generation, this generation, and every subsequent generation. In verse 31, Jesus turns to the Queen of the South and He puts her in a similar category as the people of Nineveh. Just as Nineveh recognized that God was doing something in Jonah, so the Queen of the South saw, she recognized that God was doing something in Solomon. You can read about that in 1 Kings chapter 10. The point here is that both Nineveh and the Queen of the South recognized God's work in Jonah and Solomon. But this generation that was hearing Jesus is not recognizing that someone even greater than Solomon and Jonah is here. Jesus says it twice because he wants them to know that the king of the kingdom is present. But those before him are neither hearing nor seeing. It's no wonder that Jesus turns to explain this failure to see the presence of the kingdom through a metaphor concerning the eye. Read verses 33 to 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye, when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Admittedly, uh, this can be something uh, of a confusing metaphor. For ordinarily, uh, we don't think of our eyes as lamps. But I think given the context, we can easily understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is called this generation, the generation he's speaking to, a term for his unbelieving audience. Uh, he calls them an evil generation. He has been rebuking them for failing to see, to recognize the presence of the promised kingdom of God. And now he is saying, if you're not seeing this, your eyes are bad. Spiritually speaking, you're blind. Jesus' admonition in verse 35, the admonition to be careful lest you actually be full of darkness, is nothing less than a restatement of verse 23. If you're not for me, you're against me. Jesus' admonition is an invitation to see that the kingdom is present among them. Jesus has even warned of the consequences of failing to see the king in the kingdom's presence. All who fail to come under the rule and reign of the king will be judged by the king. Remember what Jesus said in verses 31 and 32? You'll notice there he said that the queen of the south and the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation for failing to repent and believe in Jesus. 
Recognizing the king and the kingdom's arrival requires the response of repentance and faith in Jesus. Having learned about kingdom prayer and the kingdom's presence, let's turn now to consider our third and final point, kingdom pronouncements. In verses 14 to 36, Jesus has already begun with to, to warn this generation of the final judgment, the coming judgment of those who reject the kingdom. Still, in these verses that we're about to consider, in verses 37 to 54, Jesus confronts specific individuals with their own obstinacy and unbelief. In these verses that we're about to turn and consider, what we come to realize is that those who were leading the way in leading God's people astray were the leaders of the people of Israel. The very men who should have been preparing the people of God for the coming of God in the flesh were oppressing God's people, were covering their eyes, were not telling them the truth of God's word. And so Jesus reserves his harshest criticism for these men. Jesus even utters, or better yet, pronounces woes over them. Woes in the prophetic literature, the Bible, think of the Old Testament prophets. They are oracles, they're declarations of judgment. And this is a completely act, uh, appropriate action for Jesus to take up not only because he is the prophet who is greater than Jonah, but also because God is exceedingly displeased with those who lead people away from him and faith in his son. And as we begin to consider these kingdom pronouncements, let's begin by reading verse 37 to 44. Luke chapter 11, verse 37 to 44. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. And the Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within. And behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Now this is an interesting dinner conversation, isn't it? I mean, I suspect that your dinner conversations don't go quite like this one. Jesus, he is invited to dinner with a Pharisee. Uh, the Pharisee is appalled when Jesus does not wash his hands. And we've got to remember, this is not like um, when we were growing up and our parents asked us and we like washed our hands before dinner. Jesus is not showing us that it's actually more spiritual to avoid hygienic practices. No, please continue to wash your hands before you sit down to eat. This washing was not for the purpose of hygiene. This was a ceremonial washing. Uh, the goal of such washing was to render one ceremonially clean before eating and to prevent rendering the food ceremonially unclean. The problem was that originally this practice of washing was only related to the priests and the sacrificial system. The Old Testament law only required that the priest wash before offering sacrifices. But the Jewish religious leaders had held this practice over the heads of the people and said, you must do this too. Notice what Jesus does. He doesn't condemn the Pharisees for their practice so much as he condemns them for the state of their hearts. Using the cups before him, as metaphors, uh, Jesus says to them in verse 39, You think, you know, that all of your outward observance of cleansing is making you clean? But what is inside of you, that's what's dirty. And you're not reaching it. Your hearts are filthy. You're not clean before God. All of your efforts to cleanse yourselves are done in vain. Your hearts are full of greed. And wickedness. Now here's the truth. 
as we're reading this, we tend to kind of distance ourselves from the Pharisees and think that we're not like them. But you know what? That's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They would have shouted, Amen, when Jesus said that this generation is a wicked and evil generation there in verse 29. What Jesus is saying to them is this, you're hypocrites, and you don't seem to know it. Friends, everyone here this morning needs to give ear to what Jesus is saying. Because like the Pharisees, we all struggle with hypocrisy and self-righteousness. We all think that we are better than others. We're all tempted to think that we can make ourselves good enough, clean enough for God. Jesus' words are also important for many wealthy Northern Virginians. Greed is far more subtle and insidious than many of us are willing to admit. We all need to do what Jesus says there in verse 41. Give as alms those things that are within. That's what repentance looks like. Sinners must confess their sin and their self-righteousness. We must confess our rejection of God and His rule in our lives. We must give our hearts, our lives, our all, as Isaac Watts so beautifully said. We must give our lives, ourselves, our all to the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can make us clean by His blood shed for us. Verses 42 and 43 contain two more woes from Jesus. And in these woes, in these two woes, Jesus remains focused, I think, in a laser-like manner on their hearts and on ours. In verse 42, Jesus points out that the Pharisees have given zealous attention to the finer points of the law rather than the overarching principles which undergird the law, justice and the love of God. Isn't it interesting that Jesus does not pit these two things against each other? The overarching fundamentals of the law and the finer points. No, Jesus says rather the Pharisees should have done both. It is in the nature of self-justifying people, though, to give themselves to doing the things that they want to do, to doing the things that they feel are within their reach. We like to pick and choose what laws and commands we want to obey, while sometimes neglecting others. Friend, have you ever tried to justify yourself before God? If you've ever thought to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm a good person, and the answer is you have. Uh, you have done precisely what the Pharisees are doing here in Luke 11. You've looked on the parts of your life that you've done well in and you've judged yourself good in God's sight. And here's the thing. The Bible tells us that if we fail to keep one point of the law, we have failed to keep the whole thing. James chapter 2, verse 10. No one has kept the whole law. No one but Jesus. He is the only one who has fulfilled all righteousness. He is the only one who is without sin, as Hebrews 4 tells us. It is no surprise that people who try to justify themselves love themselves. They haven't loved God, verse 42. But they have loved themselves, verse 43. All the more troubling. The Pharisees are unaware that they are contaminating others with their own self-righteous, loveless, and justice-neglecting religion. That's what verse 44 communicates. The Pharisees themselves are actually making others unclean before God. See, the dinner conversation, it started with the Pharisees assuming that Jesus was unclean, but the tables are turned there in verse 44 to reveal that they are actually spiritually unclean before God. You see, Jewish graveyards were clearly demarcated because contact with the dead would make you ceremonially unclean. And this included walking on graves. Jesus calls the Pharisees dead men who are making others unclean. Remember, this is a dinner conversation. You're dead men. You're buried. And people are walking over you. They don't know they're walking over your graves. The Pharisees were the ones who were supposed to teach the people about how to live in a way that pleased the Lord, but they were only making matters worse for themselves and for others. And I think this word from Jesus 
should be a caution to every Christian teacher. There is a reason that James said, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Christian teachers, we must be careful with how we handle the Word of God. There is a danger in misleading God's people. It is after Jesus' assertion that the Pharisees are like dead men that a lawyer spoke up. A defender defends his religious colleagues, his fellow religious leaders. He rightly recognizes that Jesus' critique is not merely aimed at the Pharisees, but also at the scribes and teachers of the law. Jesus was dealing with the law. He had entered into this field of conversation, this mention of the law, the preceding verses. Read Luke chapter 11, verses 45 to 54 now. Luke 11, 45 to 54. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one finger. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them. And you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge you did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him and to speak many things about him, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Aren't you amazed by Jesus? The lawyer says, hey, watch it. No, you're, you're insulting us too. And Jesus says, you know, you're right. I almost forgot. Woe to you, lawyers. Woe to you. They are hypocrites like the Pharisees. They lay laws on the people and they don't even keep them themselves. How many times have we done this? How many times have we held others to a standard that perhaps secretly we're failing to live up to ourselves. Publicly, we might condemn them, but privately, we are ashamed of the truth that we are filled with the same unrighteousness. Just as the Pharisees love themselves, so did the teachers of the law. Just as the Pharisees failed to love others, so did the teachers of the law. Just as Jesus tied an aspect of death to the Pharisees, so he tied an aspect of death to the teachers of the law. That's what's going on in verses 47 to 51. The teachers of the law inherited the guilt of their fathers in putting the prophets to death. Jesus even tells us that through building their tombs, they demonstrate that they would have done the same thing that their fathers did to put the prophets to death. Just as the Pharisees made the people unclean before the Lord, so the teachers of the law led the people away from the knowledge of God. Verse 52. The Pharisees had neglected the weighty matters, and the lawyers had made the law weighty on the people. Verses 53 and 54 reveal to us that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law have begun to collaborate against Jesus. Here too we see proof that the teachers of the law stand in the line of their fathers before them. They too wish to silence Jesus, the prophet who is greater than Jonah. The Pharisees and the teachers are worthy of these woes and pronouncements that Jesus uttered over them. And here we must be honest enough to recognize that too often we share too much in common with them. This portion of Luke is a warning to Christian church leaders as I mentioned and to those whom they lead. We all wrestle with hypocrisy, appearing clean on the outside, but dirty within. We are all tempted toward precise legalism, 
while failing to embrace God's justice and love. We all face the danger of pride seeking prominent positions in our homes, in our church, in our workplaces, in neighborhoods. We all face the danger of false teaching. We all face the danger of false teaching, either giving our ears and our hearts to it or delivering it. We all face the danger of rejecting God's instruction when we reject those who are instructing us from God's word. We may even pose a danger to others, blocking their way to God, calling them to depend upon their righteousness rather than Jesus' righteousness. Have you recognized, I wonder as we've been looking through Luke 11, have you recognized the source that links all of these dangerous temptations together? It is our sin-filled hearts. The source of danger is our heart's desire to build our own kingdom instead of building Christ's kingdom. And this is where I want us to conclude. If, if one challenge in reading a portion of Scripture like this is distancing ourselves from, from the sins of those who have been exposed, then the other challenge is feeling distant from Jesus Himself. Brothers and sisters, if, if Jesus has exposed your sins in Luke 11, and He has, then you need to perceive that exposure as a gracious kindness from our King. See, mercifully, Jesus does not leave us in our sin. He warns us of it. He awakens us to it. In Luke 11, Jesus has told us that we are indeed sinners. And He's done something else too that we need to remember. Jesus has also instructed us to come to the Father in prayer and to receive forgiveness of our sins. He has told us that He came to go to the cross, to go down into the clod, like Jonah went down into the depths, and that He would come again in the clouds. And on that day, Jesus' kingdom pronouncement over God's children will not be one of woe, but one of welcome. So delight in your Savior and run to Him, for He is your forgiving King. Let's pray together.